This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Murphy Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini Chapter 16 That affair of Mademoiselle Dogeron bore as its natural fruit an improvement in the already cordial relations between Captain Blood and the governor of Tortuga. At the fine stone house, with its green jalousied windows, which Monsieur Dogeron had built himself in a spacious and luxuriant garden to the east of Cayona, the captain became a very welcome guest. Monsieur Dogeron was in the captain's debt for more than the twenty thousand pieces of eight which he had provided for Mademoiselle's ransom. And shrewd, hard bargain driver though he might be, the Frenchman could be generous and understood the sentiment of gratitude. This he now proved in every possible way, and under his powerful protection the credit of Captain Blood among the buccaneers very rapidly reached its zenith. So when it came to fitting out his fleet for that enterprise against Maracaibo, which had originally been Lavasso's project, he did not want for either ships or men to follow him. He recruited five hundred adventurers in all, and he might have had as many thousands if he could have offered them accommodation. Similarly, without difficulty, he might have increased his fleet to twice its strength of ships, but that he preferred to keep it what it was. The three vessels to which he confined it were the Arabella, the La Foudre, which Cahusac now commanded, with a contingent of some six-score Frenchmen, and the Santiago, which had been refitted and rechristened the Elizabeth, after that Queen of England, whose seamen had humbled Spain, as Captain Blood now hoped to humble it again. Hagthorpe, in virtue of his service in the navy, was appointed by Blood to commander, and the appointment was confirmed by the men. It was some months after the rescue of Mademoiselle Dogeron, in August of that year 1687, that this little fleet, after some minor adventures, which I pass over in silence, sailed into the great lake of Maracaibo, and effected its raid upon that opulent city of the main. The affair did not proceed exactly as was hoped, and Blood's force came to find itself in a precarious position. This is best explained in the words employed by Cahusac, which Pitt has carefully recorded. In the course of an altercation that broke out on the steps of the church of Nuestra Señora del Carmen, which Captain Blood had impiously appropriated for the purpose of a corps de garde. I have said already that he was a papist only when it suited him. The dispute was being conducted by Hagthorpe, Wolverstone and Pitt on the one side, and Cahusac, out of whose uneasiness it all arose, on the other. Behind them, in the sun-scorched, dusty square, sparsely fringed by palms, whose fronds drooped listlessly in the quivering heat, surged a couple of hundred wild fellows, belonging to both parties, their own excitement momentarily quelled, so that they might listen to what passed among their leaders. Cahusac appeared to be having it all his own way, and he raised his harsh, querulous voice, so that all might hear his truculent denunciation. He spoke, Pitt tells us, a dreadful kind of English, which the shipmaster, however, makes little attempt to reproduce. 
His dress was as discordant as his speech. It was of a kind to advertise his trade, and ludicrously, in contrast with the sober garb of Hagthorpe and the almost foppish daintiness of Jeremy Pitt. His soiled and blood-stained shirt of blue cotton was open in front, to cool his hairy breast, and the girdle about the waist of his leather breeches carried an arsenal of pistols and a knife, whilst a cutlass hung from a leather baldric loosely slung about his body. Above his countenance, broad and flat as a Mongolian's, a red scarf was swathed, turban-wise, about his head. "'Is it that I have not warned you from the beginning that all was too easy?' he demanded, between plaintiveness and fury. "'I am no fool, my friends. I have eyes, me, and I see. I see an abandoned fort at the entrance of the lake, and nobody there to fire a gun at us when we came in. Then I suspect the trap. Who would not that had eyes and brain? Bah! We come on. What do we find? A city, abandoned like the fort. A city out of which the people have taken all things of value. Again I warn Captain Blood. It is a trap, I say. We are to come on, always to come on without opposition, until we find that it is too late to go to sea again, that we cannot go back at all. But no one will listen to me. You all know so much more. Name of God! Captain Blood, he will go on, and we go on. We go to Gibraltar. True that at last, after a long time, we catch the Deputy Governor. True, we make him pay big ransom from for Gibraltar. True, between the ra- that ransom and the loot, we return here with some two thousand pieces of eight. But what is it in reality, will you tell me? Or shall I tell you? It is a piece of cheese, a piece of cheese in a mouse trap, and we are the little mice. Goddam, and the cats, oh, the cats, they wait for us. The cats are those four Spanish ships of war that have come meantime, and they wait for us outside the bottleneck of this lagoon. Mort de Dieu, that is what comes of the damned obstinacy of your fine Captain Blood. Wolverstone laughed. Cahusac exploded in fury. Hassangdieu, tu gris animal, you laugh, tell me this. How do we get out again unless we accept the terms of Monsieur the Admiral of Spain? From the buccaneers at the foot of the steps came an angry rumble of approval. The single eye of the gigantic Wolverstone rolled terribly, and he clenched his great fists as if to strike the Frenchman, who was exposing them to mutiny. But Cahuzac was not daunted. The mood of the men enheartened him. You think, perhaps, this your Captain Blood is the good God, that he can make miracles, eh? He is ridiculous, you know, this Captain Blood, with his grand air and his... He checked. Out of the church at that moment, grand air and all, sauntered Peter Blood. With him came a tough, long-legged French sea-wolf named Iberville, who, though still young, had already won fame as a privateer commander, before the loss of his own ship had driven him to take service under blood. The captain advanced towards that disputing group, leaning lightly upon his long ebony cane, his face shaded by a broad-plumed hat. There was in his appearance nothing of the buccaneer. He had much more the air of a lounger in the Mal or the Alameda. The latter, rather, since his elegant suit of violet taffetas with gold-embroidered buttonholes, 
was in the Spanish fashion. Of the long, stout, serviceable rapier, thrust up behind by the left hand resting lightly on the pummel, corrected the impression. That and those steely eyes of his announced the adventurer. "'You find me ridiculous, eh, Cahusac?' said he, as he came to a halt before the Breton, whose anger seemed already to have gone out of him. "'What? Then must I find you?' He spoke quietly, almost wearily. "'You will be telling them that we have delayed, and that it is the delay that has brought about our danger. But whose is the fault of that delay? We have been a month in doing what should have been done, and what but for your blundering would have been done inside of a week.' Asca nom de Dieu! Was it my fault that... Was it anyone's fault that you ran your ship La Foudre aground on the shoal in the middle of the lake? You would not be piloted. You knew your way. You took no soundings, even. The result was that we lost three precious days in getting canoes to bring off your men and your gear. Those three days gave the folk at Gibraltar not only time to hear of our coming, but time in which to get away. After that, and because of it, we had to follow the governor to his infernal island fortress, and a fortnight and best part of a hundred lives were lost in reducing it. That's how we come to have delayed until this Spanish fleet is fetched round from La Guayera by Gala Costa. And if ye hadn't lost La Foudre, and so reduced our fleet from three ships to two, we should even now be able to fight our way through with a reasonable hope of succeeding. Yet you think it is for you to come hectoring here upbraiding us for a situation that is just the result of your own ineptitude? He spoke with a restraint, which I trust you will agree was admirable, when I tell you that the Spanish fleet, guarding the bottleneck exit of the great lake of Maracaibo, and waiting there the coming forth of Captain Blood, with a calm confidence based upon its overwhelming strength, was commanded by his implacable enemy, Don Miguel de Espinosa y Valdez, the Admiral of Spain. In addition to his duty to his country, the Admiral had, as you know, a further personal incentive arising out of that business aboard the Encarnacion a year ago, and the death of his brother, Don Diego, and with him sailed his nephew, Esteban, whose vindictive zeal exceeded the Admiral's own. Yet knowing all this, Captain Blood could preserve his calm in reproving the cowardly frenzy of one for whom the situation had not half the peril with which it was fraught for himself. He turned from a Cahuzac to address the mob of buccaneers, who had surged nearer to hear him, for he had not troubled to raise his voice. "'I hope that will correct some of the misapprehension that appears to have been disturbing you,' said he. "'There's no good can come of talking what's past and done,' cried Cahuzac, more sullen now than truculent. Whereupon Wolverstone laughed, a laugh that was like the neighing of a horse. The question is, what are we to do now? Sure now, there's no question at all, said Captain Blood. Indeed, but there is, Cahusac insisted. Don Miguel, the Spanish admiral, has offered us safe passage to sea, if we will depart at once, do no damage to the town, release our prisoners, and surrender all that we took at Gibraltar. Captain Blood smiled quietly, knowing precisely how much Don Miguel's word was worth. It was Iberville who replied, in manifest scorn of his compatriot. Which argues that, even at this disadvantage, as he has us, the Spanish admiral is still afraid of us. That can only be because, 
He doesn't know our real weakness, was the fierce retort. And anyway, we must accept these terms. We have no choice. That is my opinion. Well, it's not mine now, said Captain Blood. So I've refused them. Refuse? Cahusac's broad face grew purple. A muttering from the men behind him hardened him. You have refused? You have refused? Already? And without consulting me? Your disagreement could have altered nothing. You'd have been outvoted, for Hagthorpe here was entirely of my own mind. Still, he went on, if you and your own French followers wish to avail yourselves of the Spaniards' terms, we shall not hinder you. Send one of your prisoners to announce it to the Admiral. Don Miguel will welcome your decision, you may be sure. Cahusac glowered at him in silence for a moment. Then, having controlled himself, he asked in a concentrated voice, Precisely what answer have you made to the Admiral? A smile irradiated the face and eyes of Captain Blood. I have answered him that unless, within four and twenty hours, we have his parole to stand out to sea, ceasing to dispute our passage or hinder our departure, and a ransom of fifty thousand pieces of eight for Maracaibo, we shall reduce this beautiful city to ashes, and thereafter go out and destroy his fleet. The impudence of it left Cahusac speechless. But among the English buccaneers in the square, there were many who savoured the audacious humour of the trapped dictating terms to the trappers. Laughter broke from them. It spread into a roar of acclamation, for bluff is a weapon dear to every adventurer. Presently, when they understood it, even Cahusac's French followers were carried off their feet by that wave of jocular enthusiasm until in his truculent obstinacy Cahusac remained the only dissentient. He withdrew in mortification. Nor was he to be mollified until the following day brought him his revenge. This came in the shape of a messenger from Don Miguel, with a letter in which the Spanish admiral solemnly vowed to God that, since the pirates had refused his magnanimous offer to permit them to surrender with the honours of war, he would now await them at the mouth of the lake there to destroy them on their coming forth. He added that should they delay their departure, he would so soon as he was reinforced by a fifth ship, the Santo Nino, on its way to join him from La Guaira, himself come inside to seek them at Maracaibo. This time Captain Blood was put out of temper. Trouble me no more, he snapped at Cahusac, who came growling to him again. Send words to Don Miguel that you have seceded from me. He'll give you safe conduct, devil a doubt. Then take one of the sloops, order your men aboard, and put to sea, and the devil go with you. Cahusac would certainly have adopted that course if only his men had been unanimous in the matter. They, however, were torn between greed and apprehension. If they went, they must abandon their share of the plunder, which was considerable, as well as the slaves and other prisoners they had taken. If they did this, and Captain Blood should afterwards contrive to get away unscathed, and from their knowledge of his resourcefulness, the thing, however unlikely, need not be impossible, he must profit by that which they now relinquished. This was a contingency too bitter for contemplation. And so, in the end, despite all that Cahusac could say, the surrender was not to Don Miguel, but to Peter Blood. They had come into the venture with him, they asserted, 
and they would go out of it with him or not at all. That was the message he received from them that same evening by the sullen mouth of Cahusac himself. He welcomed it, and invited the Breton to sit down and join the council, which was even then deliberating upon the means to be employed. This council occupied the spacious patio of the governor's house, which Captain Blood had appropriated to his own uses. A cloistered stone quadrangle, in the middle of which a fountain played coolly under a trellis of vine. Orange trees grew on two sides of it, and the still evening air was heavy with the scent of them. It was one of those pleasant exterior interiors which Moorish architects had introduced to Spain, and the Spaniards had carried with them to the New World. Here that council of war, composed of six men in all, deliberated until late that night upon the plan of action which Captain Blood put forward. The great freshwater lake of Maracaibo, nourished by a score of rivers from the snow-capped ranges that surround it on two sides, is some hundred and twenty miles in length, and almost the same distance across at its widest. It is, as has been indicated, in the shape of a great bottle, having its neck towards the sea at Maracaibo. Beyond this neck it widens again, and then the two long, narrow strips of land, known as the islands of Vigilialis and Palamas, block the channel, standing lengthwise across it. The only passage out to sea for vessels of any draught lies in the narrow strait between these islands. Palomas, which is some ten miles in length, is unapproachable for half a mile on either side by any but the shallowest craft, save at its eastern end, where, completely commanding the narrow passage out to sea, stands the massive fort which the buccaneers had found deserted upon their coming. In the broader water between this passage and the bar, the four Spanish ships were at anchor in mid-channel. The Admiral's Encarnacion, which we already know, was a mighty galleon of forty-eight great guns and eight small. Next in importance was the Salvador, with thirty-six guns. The other two, the Infanta and the San Felipe, though smaller vessels, were still formidable enough with their twenty guns and a hundred and fifty men apiece. Such was the fleet of which the gaunt was to be run by Captain Blood, with his own Arabella of forty guns, the Elizabeth of twenty-six, and two sloops captured at Gibraltar, which they had indifferently armed with four culverins each. In men they had a bare four hundred survivors of the five hundred odd that had left Tortuga, to oppose a fully thousand Spaniards manning the galleons. The plan of action submitted by Captain Blood to that council was a desperate one, as Cahusac uncompromisingly pronounced it. Why, so it is, said the captain. I've done things more desperate. Complacently, he pulled at a pipe that was loaded with that fragrant sacerdote's tobacco for which Gibraltar was famous, and of which they had brought away some hogsheads. And what is more, they succeeded. Odysseus Fortuna Juvat. Bedad, they knew their world, the old Romans. He breathed into his companion, and even into Cahusac, some of his own spirit of confidence, and in confidence all went busily to work. For three days, from sunrise to sunset, the buccaneers laboured and sweated to complete the preparations for the action that was to procure them their deliverance. Time pressed. They must strike before Don Miguel de Espinosa, 
received the reinforcement of that fifth galleon, the Santo Nino, which was coming to join him from La Guarda. Their principal operations were on the larger of the two sloops captured at Gibraltar, to which vessel was assigned the leading part in Captain Blood's scheme. They began by tearing down all bulkheads until they had reduced her to the merest shell, and in her sides they broke open so many ports that her gunwale was converted into the semblance of a grating. Next they increased by half a dozen the scuttles in her deck, whilst into her hull they packed all the tar and pitch and brimstone that they could find in the town, to which they added six barrels of gunpowder, placed on end like guns, at the open ports on the larboard side. On the evening of the fourth day, everything being now in readiness, all were got aboard, and the empty, pleasant city of Maracaibo was at last abandoned, but they did not weigh anchor until some two hours after midnight. Then, at last, on the first of the ebb, they drifted silently down towards the bar, with all canvas furled, save only their split sails, which, so as to give them steering way, were spread to the faint breeze that stirred through the purple darkness of the tropical night. The order of their going was as follows. Ahead went the improvised fireship in charge of Wolverstone, with a crew of six volunteers, each of whom was to have a hundred pieces of eight over and above his share of plunder as a special reward. Next came the Arabella. She was followed at a distance by the Elizabeth, commanded by Hagthorpe, with whom was the now shipless Cahusac and the bulk of his French followers. The rear was brought up by the second sloop and some eight canoes, aboard of which had been shipped the prisoners, the slaves, and most of the captured merchandise. The prisoners were all pinioned and guarded by four buccaneers with musketoons who manned these boats in addition to the two fellows who were to sail them. Their place was to be in the rear, and they were to take no part whatever in the coming fight. At the first glimmerings of opalescent dawn dissolved the darkness, the straining eyes of the buccaneers were able to make out the tall rigging of the Spanish vessels, riding at anchor less than a quarter of a mile ahead, entirely without suspicion, as the Spaniards were, and rendered confident by their own overwhelming strength. It is unlikely that they used a vigilance keener than their careless habit. Certain it is that they did not sight Blood's fleet in that dim light until Blood's fleet had sighted them. By the time that they had actively roused themselves, Wolverstone's sloop was almost upon them, speeding under canvas, which had been crowded, to her yards the moment the galleons had loomed into view. Straight for the Admiral's great ship, the Encarnacion, did Wolverstone head the sloop. Then, lashing down the helm, he kindled from a match that hung ready-lighted beside him a great torch of thickly plated straw that had been steeped in bitumen. First it glowed. Then, as he swung it round his head, it burst into flame, just as the slight vessel went crashing and bumping and scraping against the side of the flagship, whilst rigging became tangled with rigging, to the straining of yards and snapping of spars overhead. His six men stood at their posts on the larboard side, stark naked, each armed with a grapnel, four of them on the gunwale, two of them aloft. At the moment of impact, these grapnels were slung to bind the Spaniard to them, those aloft being intended to complete and preserve the entanglement of the rigging. Aboard the rudely awakened galleon, all was confused hurrying, scurrying, trumpeting and shouting. At first there had been a desperately hurried attempt to get up the anchor, 
but this was abandoned as being already too late, and conceiving themselves on the point of being boarded, the Spaniards stood to arms to ward off the onslaught. Its slowness in coming intrigued them, being so different from the usual tactics of the buccaneers. Further intrigued were they by the sight of the gigantic Wolverstone, speeding naked along his deck, with the great flaming torch held high. Not until he had completed his work did they begin to suspect the truth, that he was lighting slow matches, and then one of their officers, rendered reckless by panic, ordered a boarding party on to the sloop. The order came too late. Wolverstone had seen his six fellows drop overboard after the grapnels were fixed, and then had spared himself to the starboard gunwale. Thence he flung his flaming torch down, the nearest gaping scuttle into the hold, and thereupon dived overboard in his turn, to be picked up presently by the longboat from the Arabella. But before that happened the sloop was a thing of fire, from which explosions were hurling blazing combustibles aboard the Encarnacion, and long tongues of flame were licking out to consume the galleon, beating back those daring Spaniards, who, too late, strove desperately to cut her adrift. And whilst the most formidable vessel of the Spanish fleet was thus being put out of action at the outset, blood had sailed in to open fire upon the Salvador. First athwart her horse, he had loosed a broadside that had swept her decks with terrific effect. Then, going on and about, he had put a second broadside into her hull at short range. Leaving her thus half-crippled, temporarily at least, and keeping to his course, he had bewildered the crew of the Infanta by a couple of shots from the chasers on his beak head, then crashed alongside to grapple and board her, whilst Hagthorpe was doing the like by the San Felipe. And in all this time not a single shot had the Spaniards contrived to fire. So completely had they been taken by surprise, and so swift and paralysing had been Blood's stroke. Boarded now and faced by the cold steel of the buccaneers, neither the San Felipe nor the Infanta offered much resistance. The sight of their admiral in flames, and the Salvador drifting crippled from the action, had so utterly disheartened them that they accounted themselves vanquished and laid down their arms. If, by a resolute stand, the Salvador had encouraged the other two undamaged vessels to resistance, the Spaniards might well have retrieved the fortunes of the day. But it happened that the Salvador was handicapped in true Spanish fashion, by being the treasure-ship of the fleet, with plate on board to the value of some fifty thousand pieces. Intent above all upon saving this from falling into the hands of the pirates, Don Miguel, who, with a remnant of his crew, had meanwhile transferred himself aboard her, headed her down towards Palomas, and the fort that guarded the passage. This fort, the Admiral, in those days of waiting, had taken the precaution secretly to garrison and rearm. For the purpose, he had stripped the fort of Cogero, farther out on the gulf, of its entire armament, which included some cannon royal of more than ordinary range and power. With no suspicion of this, Captain Blood gave chase, accompanied by the Infanta, which was manned now by a prize crew under the command of Iberville. The stern chasers of the Salvador desultorily returned the punishing fire of the pursuers, but such was the damage she herself sustained that presently coming under the guns of the fort she began to sink and finally settled down in the shallows with part of her hull above water. Thence, some in boats and some by swimming, 
the Admiral got his crew ashore on Palomas as best he could. And then, just as Captain Blood accounted the victory won, and that his way out of that trap to the open sea beyond lay clear, the fort suddenly revealed its formidable and utterly unsuspected strength. With a roar, the cannons royal proclaimed themselves, and the Arabella staggered under a blow that smashed her bulwarks at the waist and scattered death and confusion among the seamen gathered there. Had not Pitt, her master, himself seized the whipstaff and put the helm hard over to swing her sharply off to starboard, she must have suffered still worse from the second volley that followed fast upon the first. Meanwhile, it had fared even worse with the frailer Infanta. Although hit by one shot only, this had crushed her larboard timbers on the waterline, starting a leak that must presently have filled her, but for the prompt action of the experienced Iberville in ordering her larboard guns to be flung overboard. Thus lightened, and listing now to starboard, he fetched her about, and went staggering after the retreating Arabella, followed by the fire of the fort, which did them, however, little further damage. Out of range at last, they lay too, joined by the Elizabeth and the San Philippe, to consider their position. End of chapter 16